Good morning, Vineyard. Good morning, good morning. Glad you guys are here. Everybody awake? Did you guys stay up late last night and watch the game? Man, isn't that fun? Isn't it fun? I mean, I, I hate to bring sports into the message like that, but I'm... Shoot. Holy smokes. Where did that come from? Like... The joy of Jesus got released over the state of Kentucky last night. Like, it was palpable in the air. It was awesome. Loving that. Cool. Um, before we begin the message, I also want to let you know, I hope you saw on Facebook uh, this week that you guys were incredibly generous towards the Big Give. Uh, we've re- we have received over 27000 towards Big Give, which is insane. Like, uh, like we've we've grown as a church, but you guys were not a big church. And um, the only way that we received twenty seven thousand dollars is because people gave what they didn't have. In one way, you know, I mean that's really the, the long and the short of it, and it's really sweet. You know, it isn't generosity if you're giving what you don't miss. And I know for a fact that there are some families in this church who gave an amount that they're going to miss, and that really, I mean that that blesses me and it blesses Jesus and. You know, we're gonna go we're gonna go slam that down on our note and uh get this thing taken care of. So I just wanted to say thank you. That was a that's a really, really big deal. And I actually received it as a sign of the kingdom. Um being able seeing people give like that is a sign of the kingdom. Not unlike tumors dissolving, lost people coming to Jesus. It's all sort of in that same domain. It's a really big deal. So gold stars. Awesome. Uh if you want to open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at 14 verses this morning. Some of the really, really good stuff in Colossians. Calling this message, New Clothes. Hopefully you'll track with me here in a moment. First thing I want to do is read the passage. So let's just go ahead and start. We're going to look at these 14 verses. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't even know how that happens. Technology. This is awesome, you guys. Here we go. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have, look at this, put off the old self with its practices. In verse 10, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, look again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, notice here again, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Amen. Amen. wanted to draw your attention to a few of those phrases there by just putting them in italics. Because over and over again, four times in just 14 verses, Paul says to the church, put some things off or put some things on. And the image that he's working off of, it's not as clear to you and it's not as clear to me because I don't know Greek and probably you don't either. But from what the scholars tell me, the, the really interesting image that Paul's working off of here when he says put on or put off is he's using this image of change your clothes. It's a word that basically means change your garments, right? So that's sort of the the controlling idea that we're looking at here. And before we go any further, I want to tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? All right, cool. I need you to do a... Actually, I'm going to read you a story. I'm going to read you a little parable because it's going to help us grab hold of these 14 verses. If that's all right. This is how the story goes. There was once a man who had lived a really hard life. His parents had made a couple tragic decisions, and because of their faulty decision-making, their family disintegrated. And from a really early age, he was on the streets, fending for himself. People tried to get the boy and his sisters into an orphanage, but he would never stay at the orphanage. He didn't like the rules, so he would sneak out in the middle of the night. This meant that he would be on the streets, and he had to steal for pretty much everything he had. He often ate out of garbage cans, and he smoked other people's used cigarettes, the ones they flicked on the concrete sidewalks. Unless, of course, he was able to scrounge up the money he needed to buy his own. And when he did have a a pack of fresh cigarettes, he hid them deep in the lining of his ragged-out flannel jacket so no one would see them and ask to bum one. He loved to smoke, and he mostly did so alone. He was also a fighter. Loved to fight. He lived on the streets, and the truth is he could have moved uptown to a safer area, but he never did. The reason he didn't is because he loved fighting. He liked beating a man senseless to get whatever it was he wanted. And sometimes, the only thing he was looking for was the thrill of beating a man senseless. His fists were two rocky stones, and his knuckles were large and arthritic from all the punches that he had landed through the years. But he liked feeling the arthritic pain, because it was a reminder of all the victories that he had won. He hadn't lost a fight since he turned 14. And there was this one occasion where a small gang of men jumped him and beat him. But that didn't really count because there were four of them and only one of him. And even on that day, he broke two noses before the pack of wolves had him on the ground. Because of his ferocity, the man was famous on the streets. People knew his name, but they hardly ever said it. Sometimes someone would whisper his name, but never ever above a whisper. And as he grew older, he hardly ever fought. People knew better. His past victories stretched forward to the point that he had become a Goliath in everyone's mind. People feared the man without a smidgen of pity. But then one day, something happened that no one saw coming. The richest guy in town started giving his fortune away. The rich guy had a kid, and while that kid was out in town, that street gang met him. The one that beat up our street fighter. 
And they attacked the rich man's kid and they killed him. Anyhow, the rich man went out and he gave fistfuls of money away. It made no sense to anyone. But in his mind, he was giving away his dead son's inheritance. He thought someone must have the money. So he gave it to anybody who would receive it. And the street fighter would never receive it because he was sure it was a hoax. He always refused the cash. But one day the rich man sent out word that everyone who lived in the town was invited to a huge party at his house. Everyone, it didn't matter who you were. It was going to be the biggest party that anyone in that city had ever thrown. It was going to be the biggest party in that city that anyone had ever been to. And it was going to be formal. The sort of gathering that you would want to wear your best dress or your best suit to. Trouble was, the street fighter didn't have a suit. Truthfully, he didn't even like them. Told other people they were monkey suits. But one day, the rich man was out making preparations, and he saw the street fighter, and he invited him to the party. He knew the street fighter's name, and he called to him from across two lanes of traffic. The street fighter came over to talk and to tell the rich man that he had, had, in fact, heard of the party. He knew all about it. He knew also that it was going to be fancy. It was probably the sort of event that called for a suit. But he didn't have the money for a suit. And furthermore, he didn't like them. So he declined the invitation. But the rich man insisted. In fact, he spoke, bulk, he spoke boldly to the man. He said to the street fighter, Look, I'll buy you the perfect set of clothes. I'll buy you the perfect set of clothes. And the truth is, Street Fighter, the only reason you don't like them is because you've never worn them. You actually don't know what you're talking about. Street Fighter, what you need to do is you need to trust me. No one had ever spoken to the Street Fighter so boldly. No one had ever offered such generosity. And he was dumbfounded. And in a state of shock, he followed the rich man to the tailor's shop and was fitted with the finest Italian suit, charcoal gray, cut slim. Can't ever go wrong. When the street fighter saw himself in the suit, he hardly recognized himself. He looked dignified. He looked smart. He looked like somebody you would want to know. In other words, he instantly fell in love with his new suit. The rich man paid for the suit and bought him some nice Italian shoes as well. And while they were on the, on the street leaving, the street fighter asked the rich man when the party was. And the rich man said to him, it's really soon, I'll let you know, you just need to be ready. So the street fighter put on his suit immediately, and he went and got a haircut and a shave. And he didn't fight anymore. And he didn't even want to. He just thought about his encounter with the rich man and the party that was going to be thrown. In fact, he thought about the party every single day and he wore his suit every single day. That's basically this passage. What if you were invited to a party? What if you got an invitation to a party? And what if it wasn't just any old party, but what if it was a really, really great party? What if everybody was going to be there. I mean, all of the really good people. What if like the most famous people were going to be there, but not just the most famous people. What if like all the rotten people were going to be there too? And it didn't even matter because that was somehow connected to the greatness of the party. And what if you'd lived your entire life on the streets 
And what if you'd lived your entire life fighting for what's yours and doing what you wanted? What if you'd lived your entire life doing what you wanted? What if you'd lived your entire life just surviving? What if you started liking the fight? What if you fought so much that you got good at it and the proficiency actually started making you enjoy the fight? What if you lived out there so long you started enjoying the fight? What if you were then invited to a brand new reality? What if you were then invited to something that didn't look like anything you'd ever experienced or been to before? What if somebody provided everything you needed? What if someone invited you out of something and into something and provided exactly what you needed to fit in and make it? What if you had been a lifelong taker but were met by unimaginable generosity? What if you were challenged on your core beliefs? And what if someone were to tell you that you don't really know what you're talking about because you've never experienced the other reality? Like you don't know what you're talking about. What if you were asked to live for another day and that meant that you needed to quit living for this current day? What if you were asked to take off the dirty, smoke-drenched flannel that you've worn for the last 30 years and put on a gray Italian slim-cut tailored suit? What if you were invited to a party? I don't know if you're aware of this, but you can tell a lot about a person by what they wear. And I'm not talking about like little simple petty judgments, but truth is you can tell a lot about a person by what they wear. You guys ever been in, a, in an airport and did a little people watching and, you know, that game, you, you go, you play the game, right? You're going to be there for two hours. You got really nothing to do. Your phone has 10% battery left. So you're going to kill some time doing some people watching. You look at your wife and you're like, well, what do you think that guy does? And you're just making judgments about a person by what they wear. What's funny is, is it's, it's oftentimes pretty accurate. I've been known to go and ask the person what they do after we've pinned them. It's a fun game. It's the way you take the game up another level. This game works in malls as well. It's really strange, but what you put on is speaking on some level to what we're about and what we're prepared to do. The clothes you wear speak to some level who you are, what you're about, and what you're prepared to do. When a woman gets married, she puts on the white wedding dress, and it lets everybody in the room know who she is, what she's about, and what she's prepared to do. If you see a man in steel-toed boots, you know he's ready to do some hard, possibly heavy, and dangerous work. And before a football player goes into the game, he throws on his shoulder pads and straps on his helmet. And if you're about to cook, you probably put on an apron. It's pretty basic stuff. There's nothing too surprising here. Now I want you to imagine if the woman who is about to be married shows up at the wedding wearing shoulder pads and a helmet. If the woman about to get married shows up in shoulder pads and a helmet, we begin to think some things about that woman. Right? What sort of marriage is this going to be? (laughs) 
instantly assumptions about her and the event changed and I began to wonder if she's gone nuts is this some sort of super postmodern ceremony did I misread the invitation these are precisely the images that Paul is working off of here in Colossians 3 1 through 14 four times in 14 verses Paul tells the church why don't you put some things off and why don't you put some things on and the image he's using is why don't you change your clothes Why don't you change your clothes? And by the way, he's talking to believers. He's talking to followers of Jesus, and he's telling them first to put off the old self by putting some things to death. And here are the things that Paul says that that need to be put to death. And by the way, there are two kinds of believers uh, that exist for the most part when you approach passages like this. I want to call this out right now. Um, the first kind of believer is the sort of believer who wants to imagine in their brain that, that these lists don't really exist. There are certain people in the church that want to believe that the lists that we're about to read are not really there and we want to do anything we can to get them out, but we can't get them out. And then there's the other believer who enjoys these lists, like gets, gets a great deal of pleasure from them comes up to the pastor after the message and points to the list and basically says, yeah, we need, to, we need to do more of the list here at the church, you know? I just want to say, both of those believers are crazy and are missing the point. Here are the things that Paul says must be put off. Here's some things that need to be put to death. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. These are the things that need to be not just put off, but put to death. Paul's using extremely, extremely potent language here. The truth is, in wider culture, we hardly know what this means anymore. Uh, The reason we hardly know what this list even means anymore is because our culture is so soaked in sexual brokenness. Not some people, everyone. Everyone. Sexual immorality, people don't even know what that means anymore. Or at least they've done a really good job of deceiving themselves is what it means. So let me just tell you what sexual immorality means. I need to tell you because it's part of the pastoral work. Here's what sexual immorality means from the Bible. Sexual immorality means if you're having sex with anyone who isn't your husband or wife outside of marriage, that's sexual immorality. Everything else will kill you. See, we live in a culture where it's totally cool. Sleep with whoever you want, anytime you want. Forget marriage. Just live together. Have a baby or two. It's totally fine. It actually isn't. It's wrecking you. And these are the things you have to put off. And I want you to notice that this first list that Paul talks about here is almost all completely rooted in our sexual identities, sexual morality, impurity. All of this stuff is rooted in the way we engage with one another sexually. Why? Because this is the very kind of thing that will destroy the church. By the way, we understand that Paul's talking to believers, right? This is the stuff that rips the community of faith right apart. Why? Because it rips basic community apart. So sex outside of covenant marriage, pornography, uh, homosexuality, acting on our same-sex attraction desires, and on and on. These have no place in the life of a believer. All of these are the dirty flannel shirts that will be sorely out of place at God's party. That's what Paul's saying. If you give yourself to that, it's like, it's like giving yourself and committing yourself to a dirty flannel shirt when God's inviting you to the most incredible party and it's going to be formal. 
The other thing I want you to notice in that first list is that covetousness is in there as well. So you have all of these things lined up, and they're almost all dealing with sexual immorality and and how we relate to one another sexually. And then at the very end, Paul tacks on this really strange one, covetousness. Why does he do that? Well, the reason he does that, in my brain anyway, is because it's basically the same thing. It's the same heart. One person looks to satisfy themselves with someone else, their physical body. Another person looks to satisfy themselves with someone else's stuff. For some in the room, looking at our neighbor's car elicits the same lust as looking at our neighbor's husband or wife. It's all the same. Some of us don't need people to touch the places of false intimacy. Some of us actually don't need another person to touch the places of false intimacy inside of us, the ones that make us feel powerful. That's what lust is always about. It's always about feelings of powerlessness. And so I will use someone else to satisfy my base desires. When I use them, I feel powerful. Covetousness is the same thing. I need a thing to make me feel significant. Same root. And some of us don't need a person to touch that place of false intimacy that makes us feel powerful. We need material possessions. They are the things that make us feel superior and strong. And I'm here to tell you, all of it's a dirty shirt. All of it's a dirty shirt. Paul says, put away, put them off, put to death. And then Paul works off another list. This list he says, put away. And the things he says to put away are these. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. And I want you to notice that this is mostly about the way we speak to one another. Paul is essentially saying, I want you to put away angry speech, wrathful words, slanderous accusations, and obscene talk. And one of the things we're tempted to do this morning is we're tempted to think that these are the little sins, that the sexual stuff is the big stuff, and and the way we talk is the little stuff, right? Uh, one of the things that we do in the church is we're like, well, I'm, I'm not sleeping with anyone other than my wife, so I'm good. And I'll talk about you as soon as you leave the room like you're a dog. <laughs> but I'm cool because that's not a big deal. But these, I want you to notice, these have the same sort of effects as the previous list on the community of faith. They rip it apart. Slander and sexual immorality destroy Christian community and the person who partakes in them. Paul says to the church, take them off. Take them off like you would a filthy shirt. Get rid of them. Put them in a trash bag and throw them away. Don't even take them to the goodwill. We don't want anyone to have these shirts. Just get rid of them. But I want you to notice here that you can't live your life just by taking things off. This is the main spot that Christian holiness fails every time. We've come to believe that Christian holiness is mostly about taking things off. But Paul doesn't stop here. He talks about putting some things on. Christians who assume that Christian holiness is about taking things off They're the ones who become self-righteous. They've taken off their filthy shirt, but they never put on compassion or kindness, and so they became cold in their nakedness. You ever met that person? 
It's awful. They never slept with anyone who wasn't their husband. There's no kindness in them. See, the heart is not a vacuum. It will be filled with something. And Paul's direction is to put on kindness and compassion. It speaks to intention. When Paul says, put these things on, it speaks to intention. It's not, not just living in some sort of a vacuum. You've got to do this. You've got to engage in this. You've got to put some direction to this. In the absence of intention, cold, self-righteous judgment tends to grow. If you take off that list that Paul talks about without the intention of putting on kindness and compassion and a gentle heart and forgiveness, you'll become a cold, self-righteous, terrible person. See, we're not called to just simply do no harm. We're not called to simply do no harm by killing sexual immorality and putting away anger. We're also called to be and bring holy bring healing by putting on compassion, kindness, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and love. See, God has provided a wardrobe for every single believer. This is what we need to come to this morning. God's provided a wardrobe for every single believer. You actually have options. Paul says, put on compassion, put on kindness, put on forgiveness, and put on love, which holds them all together in perfect harmony. The truth is, the image that we have here is that God has got a closet for every single believer, and you have options. It feels like sometimes we don't have options. We meet people, they're difficult. It's hard to put on love. But the truth is, even in the midst of the most difficult person or the most difficult situation, there is an option in your wardrobe every single day. And just like you wouldn't go to town without a shirt and some pants, neither should a Christian have even one single interaction with a person without kindness or compassion, without tenderness and without love and without bearing with one another, without putting on God's wardrobe. We are not those people who have nothing to wear. Husbands, you ever had your wife tell you, I don't have anything to wear? And you go in there and it's like... We're not those people. But I do want to point something out here. All of these actions and attitudes, both in the negative and in the positive, they're the outer garments of the heart that have been filled with Christ. They're simply the outer garments. It's not actually even the interior stuff. And this is... The, pre- the precise key that is most often overlooked in any sort of talk like this. Most pastors run straight on to verses 5 through 14, beat up the whole church and never look at verses 1 through 4. So let's put verses 1 through 4. How are you going to take stuff off and how are you going to put stuff on? This is how. Here's the truth this morning. Here's the truth. Every single believer has been raised with Christ. Verse 1, if you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above. The, The initial truth for Christian holiness is this, is that you have been raised with Christ Jesus. Everything that's happened to Jesus has happened to you. Every single thing. The truth is, and this is the starting point for Christian holiness, It doesn't seem like it. I've got good reasons not to believe it. So many of my natural inclinations say otherwise. But the gospel truth of this is this. I have been raised with Christ right now. 
Look at verse 12. Let's put verse 12 back up there. Look at what Paul says to the Colossians here in verse 12. He says, put on then, but before he says put on then, there's a little comma, and this is who he says the church is. Church, you are chosen, holy, and beloved right now. How is it that you could be chosen holy? You're actually already holy. How is it that you could be chosen holy and beloved right now? Because you've been raised with Christ. Now, I know a lot of us in the room don't feel chosen, and we don't feel holy, and we don't feel dearly loved, but the truth is, you are. And the reason you are is because you've been raised with Christ. I know that in your body, sometimes you want to act out that first list that Paul says put to death. You want to act out sexual immorality. You want to sleep with somebody who's not your wife. Or you want to sleep with somebody who's not your husband. You want to look at pornography. I know that sometimes I want to do things that are in that list. Sometimes I want to, I want to do those things. And oftentimes when we do those things, we begin to believe falsely that that is who we are. Wrong. If you have put your trust in Jesus, you've been raised with him. You're already chosen. You're already holy. You're already dearly loved. Unless you begin to deal in that world, none of the putting off or putting on will ever happen in your life. Holiness is living from something and not to something. Holiness is who we are. It is our true selves. The trouble is that the false self is often the one that feels the most real. See, if you are dealing with homosexuality, same-sex attraction feels like who you are, but it's not. It feels natural, but it's not. It's actually a false self. Looking at pornography feels natural. It feels natural. It, it, it touches something on the inside that feels natural, and it feels like that's who you really are, the person who wants to look at those images. But it's not. Outburst of anger, come, the ones that come without thinking, it feels like that's me. Anybody here ever just exploded in anger? Like, where did that come from? And then later we feel like I'm this super angry, bitter, rageful person. The truth is, you're not. You've been raised with Christ. You're chosen. You're holy. You're dearly loved. That's the true self. Outburst of anger guy is false self. And it's the guy you got to take off. Even if it feels like first nature, it's not. There's a nature that you don't, don't even realize that you have. It's one that's been hidden in Christ that we're going to look at. See, these are manifestations of the false, and I would like to say fading away self. Fading away. Fading away. This is why faith in Jesus isn't simply a one-time event. See, we have heard this thing in the church, and it's basically a lie. It's this. All you got to do is have this one-time interaction with Jesus, and you're good. Maybe. But maybe not. The trouble with a one-time interaction with Jesus, like, well, I got saved and prayed the prayer with the pastor in 1978. Great, but have you continued to put trust in Jesus? See, here's what it is. When you pray the prayer with the pastor or whatever that is, you have begun to put trust in Jesus. And what did you trust? Well, the truth is you didn't even really know what you trusted. But basically what you trusted is that Jesus died, was put in the ground, and got up, and somehow he accepted you, and you were in all of that, and you don't even know what that was, but you just started believing it even though it makes no sense. And that's what you did, and you came up, and maybe someone dunked you. And then later on, you, you had an outburst of anger, and you thought that was you and this is the very spot you have to go back and put the first trust in jesus back into gear and it is that i'm in him 
Like it doesn't feel like me. It doesn't, it's the same thing. It is the very same thing as initial faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is not one time. It's like a billion times. It's like a million trillion billion. It's like, it's like 55 zeros and with commas. That's what faith in Jesus is. It is, it is, it is continually believing that I'm in him and he's working it out for me, even though I feel like a bitter and angry, rageful pornography person. That wasn't eloquent, but you understand what I'm talking about. (laughs) See, I don't just believe that that he was God's son crucified and raised for me. I also believe that I've been raised with him into a new kind of life. No matter what my thoughts and my desires are telling me. See, your thoughts, your feelings, and your desires are oftentimes lying to you. You have to put faith into those. Your thoughts won't change until your feelings about who you really are change. And here's who you are. Chosen, holy, dearly loved. That's who you really are. Every time you want to explode in anger and you don't, you demonstrate faith. No one ever told you that, but that's what it is. Every time you want to sleep with your girlfriend and you don't, you're demonstrating that same initial faith in Jesus. Every single time you were about to slander someone. And by the way, uh, people give us great reasons to slander them. It's not like we're making this stuff up, right? (laughs) I mean, we're not even lying. But every single time you want to and you don't, you're demonstrating faith in Jesus. This is why Paul says to the church, this is why he says to me and you, to set your mind on things above. I would like to posit this, that holiness is first faith in Jesus and then an act of the imagination. Can we put those first verses back up? This is a really big deal. Look at what Paul says. Verse 1 is the absolute gospel truth. You have been raised with Christ. Therefore, seek things that are above where Christ is at the right hand of God. Look at verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things in the earth. Holiness is first trusting Jesus. And then one of the main ways that we begin to live into a new kind of life, the new kind of life that God's inviting us to, the rich man who's inviting the street fighter to a party, the way that we live into that is by beginning to engage our imaginations in, in, in this. What, what, what is the new life that God is inviting me into? Have you ever laid on your bed or on your couch for even 30 minutes and thought about Jesus? Have you ever laid on your bed or on your couch for 30 minutes and thought about heaven? Have you ever laid on your bed or on your couch for even 30 minutes and thought about God's coming future? Ever. I would like to suggest this is one of the main ways we begin to enter into a reality which is not yet fully present. It's one of the ways that we begin to participate with the future. Can you conceive of Jesus? Can you conceive of heaven? Can you conceive of God's kingdom or his coming future? Have you ever tried? 
See, without an imagination soaked in a heavenward thinking and anchored in Jesus, nothing much will change in your life. Here's what I found out. I found out that people who think about God and people who think about the kingdom of heaven and people who think about God's coming future, they're the ones who change. It's really weird. Do you have an imagination that can fill in the blanks and fill in the gaps? Uh, A lot of us have been taught to mistrust our imagination. Uh, You can't do that because you might make something up. No, actually, God wants you to make some things up. God wants you to imagine. This is everything that exists in the world today, everything that's alive in the universe and breathing, everything that's moving and anchored by gravity, every single thing first started in the imagination of God. When believers begin to put their imaginations into another place, we begin to co-create with him. And the first place we begin to co-create is actually in our own heart. Look at verse 3. This is really, really important. Paul says, For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And I want you to underline that word hidden. This is such a big deal. You have died, your life is hidden. You've been raised with Christ, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then verse 4, he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Your life is hidden. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear. What's the point? Well, the point is this. The point is there are concrete realities which exist in the universe that are presently hidden. You need to grab a hold of this with both hands. The point is, and this is what Paul is telling the church, the point is there are concrete realities in the universe. Things like you have been raised with Christ and you are hidden with Him. It's a concrete reality, but it's hidden. What does that mean? It means you don't see it and a lot of times you don't feel like it. It means you don't see it. It means a lot of times I just feel like an angry, an angry pornography person rather than a raised with Christ, hidden in God person. But the raised with Christ, hidden in God is the concrete reality in the universe and it's hidden for a while. What else is hidden? Well, like Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Paul says that the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus and that you and I have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. That's a concrete reality. Brent Burden has been filled with the fullness of God. That's the truth. No, Brent may not believe it. Half the time he probably doesn't even believe it. it. But that's the truth. And Brent can't make it any less true by not believing it. That's amazing. It's a concrete reality in the universe, but it's hidden. It's real, it's concrete, it's hidden. And by the way, hidden doesn't mean fake. We need to know this. And imagination is one of the primary ways we lay hold of the concrete, present, hidden realities that are breaking in from the future. Imagination is where you go to get this. You have to begin to imagine yourself as the person that God says that you are. And this isn't just positive thinking. This isn't like, this isn't some just positive thinking garbage. I'm about to say bad words in the message that says, clean up your filthy speech. Anyway, but it isn't, it isn't just, it isn't just that. It's, it's the real deal. You can't hack your way into compassion. You cannot hack your way into compassion. You can only live out of it 
You can only live out, you cannot hack your way into a compassionate heart. You can only live out of it. Right now, everybody in this room has a compassionate heart. You, don't, you may not manifest it, maybe you never feel it, but the truth is you've been raised with Christ, hidden in God, and you have a compassionate heart, and he's filled your closet with compassion. You can put it on every day if you want to. That's the truth. You can't hack your way into it. You've got to live out of it. And I know some of us in the room, some of us who are pretty smart are probably thinking, well, Adam, these are just word games. These are semantics. Uh, no, no, it's not. Look at verse 13. This is not word games. This is not semantics. Paul says, bearing with one another, if one has to complain against another. And then look at this. You, forgiving each other. Paul is saying you're required to forgive each other. Why? Because the Lord has forgiven you. You must also forgive. This isn't semantic stuff. It's saying that the Lord has done something for you that makes something else available to you. Every person in the room can always give out forgiveness because you've been radically forgiven. Every person in the room has compassion available because tremendous compassion has been shown to you. So much compassion that it actually eclipsed your need of compassion and there was extra compassional residue left on you. That was also not very eloquent, but it was the truth. (laughs) See, God has done something for me which makes another realm available to me. Holiness isn't just living away from something, it's living to something. And this is a really big deal. Holiness is not just saying no. Holiness is primarily saying yes. Uh, we have, we have imagined a, a church and we have imagined a Christian life which says that, um, that it is primarily a life of saying no. That is, that is bogus. Holiness is primarily saying yes. It's this one giant huge yes. What is the yes? It's the yes to Jesus. Why? Because when you say yes to Jesus, inside of that yes is a billion no's. More than a billion but we have conceived of a Christian life that is primarily contained in no's. And, and this is why you've got people on, on Facebook fighting over a, a movie called Noah. Oh, we're against stuff. Are you kidding me? It's a brilliant movie. Are you kidding me? Get over it. But what happens is, is we, have, we have conceived of a Christian life. We have conceived of, uh, of our stance in the world as as mostly no. Christian holiness is mostly no. And we have conceived of walking out our faith in Jesus as what we're against. No, that doesn't work. Christianity is yes. It is yes to Jesus. And in that yes is a billion no's and it makes all the difference in the world. You get on Facebook for five minutes and you'll find every single thing in the world that Christians are against. And we just look like the biggest bunch of crab cakes in the entire planet. It's like, what is going on? Are we this small? Are we this small? It says that we've been filled with him who is the head and the rule of all authority and we look like the smallest people. Why? Because we have conceived of holiness as being no. It's actually a yes. And we have undervalued the yes. We have undervalued Jesus. We have not conceived of how big the yes was. It's a yes that naturally comes with a million no's. See, I married my wife by being captured by her and saying yes. I didn't marry her because I couldn't find anyone better. And I also didn't marry her because I met with every single other candidate and told them all no. Yeah, but that's how 98% of Christian holiness is conceived of that ridiculous picture. 
98% of Christian holiness is conceived of me going to every woman in the world and telling them no until I find the one yes. No, it's just I found an amazing woman and I said, she captured my heart. I said yes and it was automatically a million no's. And no one thinks that I'm actually living a mostly no life. I don't even feel like I'm living a mostly no life. I feel like I'm living a yes life. I'm not even upset by all the no's that I've... Do you understand this? Like, I'm not, I'm not even upset by all the other... Like, there's, there's probably some great women out there, whatever. But I'm not even upset about it because I've said yes to something amazing. Like, I don't even care. It's not even a challenge. At all. But we've got this idea that Christianity and holiness is like this grit your teeth, like no fest. If it's a grit your teeth, no fest, it's because you never really said yes. Or if you did say yes, you didn't realize how beautiful the yes it was that you said yes to. Like you haven't conceived of cosmic Jesus, who's the ruler of the universe, who somehow lives inside. Look at that thing back there. Have you seen that poster that Andrew made, Jesus coming out of the tomb? That guy. With the banner, he's on the inside. And that tomb was like your life. So Christianity is not primarily a lifestyle of no. It's a, it's a supreme yes to Jesus. And when he says that I've been raised with him, I just agree with that over and over. And by the way, if you've been raised, uh, this is a big deal. Uh, anytime the Bible talks about being raised, uh, the thing that's in view is always new creation. It's the future coming into the present, renewing the whole thing. If I've been raised with him, I've been invited into new creation. I've been invited into the second Garden of Eden. Like, I don't know if you guys are aware of that, but like the second garden's already growing. The second garden's already growing. The first, the first person who met Jesus in, after he was resurrected was Mary. A woman met Jesus after he was resurrected. And the Gospel of John says that Mary thought he was the gardener. She couldn't have been more true. She couldn't have been more right. In the first garden, it was the woman who was deceived. In the second garden, it was the, first, it was the woman who was revealed. And it's the gardener. He's redoing the whole thing. He's redoing the whole thing. You've already, like, we're living into the new creation already. We're here. It's already beginning to happen. And so when Paul says in Colossians 3 that you and I have been raised with him, we just have to agree with that over and over. And agreeing with that is, is, is beginning to realize that God's coming future is already here and it's beginning to take form like seeds in a garden. It's growing up. And that new thing that we thought was way out there. See, some people think the good stuff is going to be... No, the good stuff's already here. It's already happening. I'll tell you a fun creation, new creation story. I told the worship band this this week. Um, I've got a couple little intern guys. They're not intern guys. They're better than that. <laughs> anyway, I hang out with two guys every single Friday. We hang out on for about three hours and we read the Bible and we pray and... We talk. It's really fun. Anyway, we prayed for the church for about an hour here, and then we decided we were going in town. We were going to do a little prayer walking around Main Street. And we were mostly just going to pray that God would fill up every empty building. Okay? So we're out there, and we're just praying that God would fill up every empty building. And I asked one of the guys, I said, Hey, Kyle, what are you feeling right now? And he goes, well, This is really weird, but I'm feeling, 
I'm feeling peace, like crazy peace, and I'm also feeling terrible despair. He goes, it makes no sense. I'm like, I actually think it makes perfect sense. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, I think it's the collision of kingdoms. I think you're feeling the, the presence and the prince of peace and his, and his government coming in. And I also think that you just feel what, what I feel. I think you feel the human side of it all at the same time, the despair that exists in Taylor County. Well, we take about 15 more steps and Harley says, look at that. We look at the ground and he picks up this little plastic thing and he holds it in his hand and it's a little plastic black panther and it's the exact same black panther that's on john mark mcmillan's new album called borderlands and kyle says i guess we're living in the borderlands and harley says harley looks up i mean you know it's yeah see the future is beginning to break into the present and we were just praying, and the Holy Spirit is saying, you're on the right track. It was Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs. Some of you are like, I don't believe that. I don't care. <laughs> this stuff happens to us. This stuff happens to me all the time. Yeah, some people think that the good stuff's going to be later. No, it's like right now. Like, it's like really weird, like Holy Spirit... Where did that Black Panther come from? I have no idea. Maybe a kid dropped it. Maybe it fell out of heaven. I don't care. But we're living on the borderlands. And so when the scripture says that you and I have been raised with him, we just agree with it over and over, and the good stuff begins to break out of the future and come into the present. Some of us think that you're only going to get right after you die and go to heaven. Well, why don't, you've already died, and you're already in heaven, seated with him. So let's just do that. That's what he says in Ephesians. Paul says that you've been seated with him in heavenly places. See, holiness without a vision of heaven or God or his glorious future or his coming party is an abstract misery. Some of us have, have a vision of the do's and don'ts, but we don't, have a, we don't have a vision of the beauty of God. We don't have a, a picture of his glorious future. We don't have a picture of heaven. We've never imagined his kingdom. And because of that, it's abstract misery. If you've kept all the rules and you're miserable, you may as well go ahead and break all the rules because you've already missed the point. Seriously. If you've never cursed and you felt good about that and you're miserable, well, just go ahead and say the cuss words that you've always wanted to and get back to reality. See, what Paul is holding out here is this. That it's time to change our clothes because God's coming future is breaking in. You've got to change your clothes because there's a new reality breaking in. And if you get, you don't want to be the guy wearing flannel at God's party. You, you don't. You know, I kind of, you, know, you know me. I've got some flannel shirts. See, the time to get ready is right now. And here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. What if, I've got some questions for y'all. What if, what if we, what if you and I, are investing in a lifestyle which is going out of fashion. What if you believe in Jesus like you did the thing, you got dunked and you said the prayer, right? But what if, what if you are investing in a lifestyle after you got dunked and said the prayer that's going out of fashion? What if we're committed to flannel when heaven is tailored Italian suits? Some of us in the room are believers but we're committed to flannel. And I'm here to tell you, 
Heaven is tailored Italian suits, cut slim. And what if we're entrenched in a life that will, that will not appear in Jesus Christ? This is where we need our imagination. You need to take your life. Paul says that you're hidden in Christ right now. And you need to imagine your life. And you need to go, hang on. What if I'm totally committed, totally committed to a life that is not in God? What happens when he shows up? That's a scary thought. Can you, imagine, can you imagine your anger, your lust, or your materialism in Jesus? What if we're committed to a definition of freedom which is fading away? See, some of us are like, man, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Say whatever I want. Sleep with whoever I want. Smoke whatever I want. Take whatever I want. Drink whatever I want. However much I want because Jesus is going to forgive it. Yada, yada. And what if we're committed to a kind of life which is fading away? Some people are. What if, we're con- what, if we, what if we come dressed as a ghoul or goblin to God's wedding supper of the Lamb? What if we're completely unprepared for God's coming future? And then scariest of all, what if we get to heaven and don't like it? What if we get to heaven and don't like it? Some in here think, That's not possible. Some people are like, there's no way. That's not possible. It doesn't matter. There's no way I could get to heaven and not like it. Oh, yeah? Well, what if God is then who he is now? What if God doesn't change? You think... You think, there's no way that I could get to heaven and not like it. Well, what if God doesn't change? What if he is then who he is now? What if he orders the universe then the way he's ordering it now? What if we don't like him now? What if we think his clothes suck? What if we don't like his party now? What chance is there we will tomorrow? I hate to get all heavy on you. I hate that. What chance is there tomorrow? Okay, Vineyard. Here's some questions for us to consider as we wrap up here. Some things for you to live with this week. Really simple. Number one, what is God asking me to take off? Question number two, what is God asking me to put on? Number three, when was the last time I set my mind on things above? And I know some of you are like really upset about that I that's not capitalized, but I'm not. I think it looks better. (laughs) Grammar police can shove it. (laughs) And number four, when was the last time I considered God, heaven, or the coming kingdom? Like, when was the last time you considered God? When was the last time you just sat around and thought about God? Like, with without even 
any pretense. You just, you're going to sit on the couch, going to spend 15 minutes, I'm going to think about God. You should. You should. Might change you. Amen? Amen. Man, the love of Jesus is in this room. He's so here. Isn't it crazy that somebody who's not here could be here? I love that. <laughs> yeah, we, it's really weird that people show up all over the world for 2,000 years to hang out with somebody who's not there, who's completely there. I love that. I totally love that. Mm. Show up, sing songs to an invisible, not present, present person. It's terrific. It's another one of those hidden concrete realities of the universe. He's here. Amen. Hey, if, uh, if there's a wor- worship team, if there's a ministry team, why don't y'all come on up? Yeah, we want to we wanna be able to minister to people this morning. Amen. Amen. Hey, why don't the rest of you all stand up? I want to pray for you, and then we'll be released. After I'm finished praying, if you need to, if you need to receive prayer for anything, if you're sick in your body, uh, if you feel like a miserable, angry pornography person, um, we we want to pray for you. If you feel more like that, as opposed to hidden with Christ in God, if you don't, if that doesn't feel true to you, you should come up this morning. We want to pray for you. All right, Father, we love you in this room. God, thanks for your work. Uh, Father, we ask that you would that you would give us faith not just to believe that Jesus has done something for us, but that he is doing something for us. God, we ask that you would give us heaven's imagination. God, would you fill our thoughts and our minds with you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer, come on up. Otherwise, give somebody a high five and a hug. Go in peace.